Welcome to this instalment of GTR's official podcast. This is the Nordics edition. I'm George Mitchell, Associate Director in GTR's Production Department. As the complex and rapidly developing situation around the global coronavirus pandemic continues to unfold, we thought we'd take a moment to look back at 2019's GTR Nordics conference, where nearly 500 attendees met in Stockholm in November to enjoy a day full of industry-focused discussion and the now famous post-event networking reception, or Mingle, to use the Nordic vernacular. Disruption in the various forms of geopolitical volatility, trade wars and sanctions, and business digitisation were some of the headline issues of the day. In this episode, we'll look back at two sessions recorded live at GTR in August 2019, then gain some more contemporary thoughts from the team at blockchain consortium WeTrade. We kick off with a look at the global sanctions landscape from Daniel Nord, legal counsel for trade compliance at Swedish telecoms company Ericsson, and former National Export Control Coordinator at the US Department of Justice, Ryan Fahey. We join as Ryan and Daniel share their perspectives with our audience on the unintended consequences and practical trade challenges arising from the current global sanctions regime. Daniel, over to you. Let me highlight a few practical challenges for, for my company, Ericsson, on, on this matter. And I think some of them may also uh, be relevant for, for you as well. We, of course, need to abide by this. Uh, being a global company, we need to abide by Swedish regulations, EU regulations, EU regulations, and any other regulation that is relevant for us. And essentially, that is the same for any company. It's only if you're a very small company or with a very local market that you can, if not disregard, at least you will not be as, as affected by, by these developments. But we certainly are very much affected. And so one challenge we have is is screening. And it's not the, to screen uh, listed entities. I mean, we have tools for that. You do as well, of course. The problem is finding those entities that are owned or controlled by the listed entities. Uh, you know, of course, that the US have a 50% uh, ownership rule, which, if you have that information, it's very clear how you can use it and you know what, what the effects are. But... Uh, when you go below that and you start looking at, at, the, at the ones who could be controlled by, by those entities, then it's much, much more difficult to find that information. The way that we operate, try to reduce our risk, is that we go to the Swedish Export Control Agency, ISP, and uh, demands or ask for a separate export license whenever there is a sensitive market or a sensitive deal. In that way, we can at least you know, blame someone else if, if it goes wrong. That's, of course, not foolproof. Uh, I'm not sure that it would impress the US authorities. Uh, so the largest risk in this uh, situation is, of course, the risk of secondary US sanctions. So we are looking actively for tools to help clarify the situation. If anyone is working on that solution, please feel free to contact us. It's also the effect if sanctions, when the sanctions kick in, how that affects our relationship with the customers and, and service providers. Essentially, can you exit the deal? That will be the, the, key, the key question, because we cannot continue the deal unless there is some sort of temporary general license by, by the US side or you know, some, some granted uh, allowance from, from, the, from OFAC. So we now 
inserted routinely in our uh, agreements that you have this type of clause, but if you go back to the earlier agreements, which are still valid, usually they do not have it. So that will be a negotiation with, with the client and the, and the customer. Sometimes that could be possible to, to, uh, to claim force majeure, but that's not always uh, the case. So this is also a key aspect for us to get in routinely in our work. And it's very important in this negotiation, because it is a negotiation with the customer, that both agrees to what we agree to and that we understand what we agree to. This is not the place for, um, uh, what's it called, uh, constructive ambiguity, which can be quite useful in the, in the diplomatic negotiations. Here, you need to know what, what you're agreeing to. A second uh, or a third challenge is the need to be agile. That was also mentioned by a previous speaker. Since it's changing so fast, I think Turkey is the Turkey sanctions are, are a primary example. You need to adapt, you need to be agile, you need to have routine structures set up to do this. Essentially, otherwise it will be very difficult. Now, let me finish up with six issues looking ahead. Just flagging those up quickly. Um, what we are likely to see is a continued use, especially on the US side, uh, of mixing trade, export control and sanctions as tools to influence other countries and other actors. Uh, that's likely to continue, which will then uh, also ensure that this turbulence continues. We're likely to see uh, proposed regulation from the European Union side on these matters, uh, controlling goods, which are not controlled by international export control agreements, and also making, putting the onus on companies to conduct a risk assessment. This is sort of runs contrary to what one would expect of a rule of law, uh, because it's not really foreseeable, it's, it's unpredictable, it's not really implementable, but that's the way it's gonna play out. I think we also will see uh, an increased awareness of the importance of U.S. nexus, that it matters, both when it comes to country of origin for products and technologies, but also with currency. Uh, and this, of course, you are very much aware of as well. China will be very interested to see how that will play out. They will adopt an export control legislation. They're in the process of doing that right now. And it's very close to the US export control legislation. What matters is then how will they implement it? Will they use it in the same way as the US are doing, as sort of an offensive tool or not? Regardless, we, of course, will need to uh, abide by that, by that uh, legislation, since we have both operations and, and businesses in, in China. And many companies, out, apart from us, do that as well. There's more challenges coming up for the global supply chains. Many companies have built global supply chains over the last decades. Uh, with this situation, with uh, custom tariffs, use of uh, different tools to make it more difficult to exchange information and technology, and also the, the lack of trust among the states of companies located in other states means that the existing global supply chains are challenged and we're likely to move into more regionalized uh, supply chains, of course, with adequate security arrangements as well. And last but not least, I'd just like to put an issue on the table, and it's um, 
And for the previous speaker, Villasoy mentioned how we used to speak in, 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 you know, in, this, uh, in the brick, which you could use to speak in, in your country at best. And now we have our, our smartphones, and regardless of where we are, we can you know, do everything. This did not happen by chance. This happened by, over the years, a continued effort by industry, primarily, to develop common global standards, and started with 3G and, and continues. And if this can't continue, if, if industry is, is uh, hindered to exchange information, technology, and have this type of cooperation, it's not certain that we will have those common global standards in the future. So this is something that we should be aware of, and that we need to protect as well. One of the key areas, Daniel, that you talked, and I think what you captured really well is, you know, with all the complexity you, you've outlined, at the end of the day, at some point, you're going to be in a situation where the, the laws, the local laws, particularly when you're talking about doing business in China and the United States, are going to be inherently in conflict. You're also likely managing issues in various different jurisdictions where, in particular, in response to the U.S. withdrawal from the JCPOA, mm. you see things like the passage of, of blocking statutes mm. and, and, and the like. Um, I don't know how much you can share, but, but as, a, as an internal compliance officer looking to be, you know, of assistance to the business to make sure that, um, you know, opportunities are pursued, but are pursued carefully and compliantly, how do you approach that when advising the business and working with the business where ultimately at the end of the day, it feels like to me it's really more about managing risk in mm -hmm. these areas than it is trying to sort laws that are going to be, at the end of the day, just inherently in conflict? Uh, yeah, I agree. It's very much about uh, managing risk. And I also agree with something we said earlier, that sometimes you can see, especially on the financial side, that financiers are, are so risk-reluctant that they go a bit further than you would need, actually, according to the sanctions. And, and that's the type of dialogue which we also have inside the company. Uh, how can we continue to make business without uh, putting ourselves at risk for sanctions, or if that is not possible, how can we then uh, leave the market, but in a way where we uh, don't burn ourselves, our bridges if, if the situation changes and we can return. So with God to Iran, we don't have any business there, uh, but when we, of course, uh, saw this, this coming uh, beforehand with the U.S. leaving JCPOA and that the possibility that sanctions would come back, we then made sure that we could leave uh, with, the, with still existing good relationship with the customers which we had uh, to make sure that they could continue to operate their networks uh, for at least some time coming. So that's, that's one thing. Uh, with China, it's, we're not there yet but it could possibly be that we have a situation where we have totally conflicting legal systems. And yeah, then that would be a problem to manage, <laughs> <laughs> to, to be honest. Uh, we'll You'll be need a good lawyer. I, I, I have one in mind. Yeah. No, but I mean, looking at my company, one advantage is then, of course, that we are a Swedish company. Uh, but if we have operations and technology development in the US, then that may mean that that is US technology. That's, of course, decided on a case-by-case -case basis. But if it then is used technology, that could then have impact on the Chinese market. 
vice versa. We also have uh, operations in China, both some R&D and, 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 and products. Will that then be able to, to, to uh, can we provide that in networks in the US or in other countries that are raising concerns about uh, possible Chinese in involvement in, 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 in equipment? So that's something which needs to be borne in mind at the very high top as well, when you take strategic decisions. Where do we operate? Where do we the R&D? How is our supply chain structured? Yeah, and it's really a sort of a holistic approach yeah. for a company itself to assess where the risks are and how best, how best to manage them. It's, yeah. it's also a fascinating industry because like the healthcare and pharma industry, it, the US policy, believe it or not, is, is in furtherance of building um, communications infrastructure, even in sanctions destinations, the idea that it brings about the ability to have more of a public dialogue and the like. And that's why policy, particularly as part of the, the last Ahmadinejad uh, elections in 2009, really changed policy to allow for favorable licensing to, to telecoms to, to encourage those communications. So it's a fascinating and sort of unusual area where you do have opportunities that that if, if done well and, and managed well, you can get into while confronting this risk you've very well articulated around trying to figure out the ownership of companies mm. in places that are difficult to access, mm. opaque, often in a different language mm. and not picked up screening. Mm. Um, and then when, you know, when a name or an entity is added to a list, they know they're added to a list, and mm. so they change the name of the company and the like. So it is a real challenge, mm. even where it's in furtherance of, of U.S. policy. Thanks, Daniel and Ryan. An issue that will remain challenging for Nordic banks and exporters for some time to come, and one that looks likely to become increasingly complex. Next up, we move into the realm of digitization, a change that many of us are experiencing across both personal and professional lives under current circumstances. Already an established trend for the trade finance sector, trade digitisation is gaining yet more prominence due to the logistical disruption caused by lockdown conditions in many locations across the globe and the significant challenge that poses to the movement of the crucial documents involved with paper-based trade transactions. Here we join our conference chair, journalist and broadcaster Mia Odebas and Villa Sointu, Nordea's Head of Emerging Technologies, discussing the need for digital network building to harness the full potential of digitization for the trade sector. My background is from technology and originally actually I came from uh, telecommunications uh, area. Now I've been a banker now for two and a half years. Uh, I've been with, working with financial technology for more than 15 years. But originally coming from, from the telecom sector, uh, it's interesting to see a lot of parallels uh, between this digital transformation uh, in the way these ecosystems are building, uh, how different actors are becoming increasingly digital, uh, and how these processes are changing and transforming uh, across these industries. Now, specifically on the, uh, on, the, on the point of trade, which is, of course, the topic of, of this, uh, this conference here today, uh, I had a discussion with a colleague of mine yesterday. Uh, I mentioned that I'm going to be on stage at the, here at the GTR conference, and she asked me, uh, so, uh, so what's the trend right now in trade? Uh, and I said, well, uh, it's digitalization and uh, networking. And she said, so same as 10 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> I said, yes, thank you. 
Talk again in 10 years? Yes, let's do that. So, uh, so it's digitalization and networking, and especially coming from the, uh, looking at the parallels from the telecom side, it's, it's the networking part that is interesting to see that uh, banking is kind of coming a little bit Behind, in behind terms of, the mobile, yeah. yeah, because when we move into the network, the building of the networks to yeah. to enable digital finance, because without an effective network, obviously you can't do much. You have to have a network infrastructure to tap into the opportunities. Yeah. Uh, where is the sector? You, you say you're behind the mobile sector. Yeah. Where is the banking sector when it comes to building networks? Uh, especially when it comes to trade, it's early days. Now, obviously, you know, banks being uh, extremely networked uh, entities uh, from the get-go, by definition, because you have to move value across different uh, uh, institutions in order to have commerce. Uh, the payment part is already quite well networked. So, you know, we can, you know, use our credit cards and debit cards all around the world it's without any problems, uh, built mostly by private companies like MasterCard and Visa. But when you go into more complex things than payments, uh, it is very, very early days mm -hmm. uh, in this. Now, coming back to the topic of trade, uh, you know, we've over the past uh, three, four years, uh, have been hearing a lot about uh, digital trade networks, uh, some of them working with blockchain technologies, for example. Uh, and uh, you know, it was seen as, as the kind of next stage of actually building these networks. So this magical B word is going to somehow solve global trade mm -hmm. uh, and among other. Uh, it hasn't yet, though. No, it hasn't. Uh, but the point being that uh, this, uh, this idea of building digital networks for trade uh, has now been uh, kind of very strongly uh, moving forward lately. Now, from, from Nordea's perspective, for example, we, of course, as most people well know, uh, decided to go into the we.trade uh, blockchain network. And uh, that is an example of, uh, of a kind of a very uh, kind of segment-specific way of uh, digitalizing the whole trade flow, uh, in this case in Europe, for uh, small and medium-sized enterprises. Uh, and we are seeing similar types of networks now popping up uh, all mm -hmm. around the world. Uh, and uh, you know, even though WeTrade is, is ahead of the game because you know we are actually live in production today, so you can go to Nordea website and become a WeTrade customer today if you want to, and start trading uh, on the next uh, on, during the you know within the hour I would say almost. Uh, but as these networks grow, you start to realize that uh, these networks are growing as islands, really. So, you know, you find a specific customer segment, like in case of WeTrade and SME, you find a, a, a geography where you actually want to implement these networks. Uh, in, in case of WeTrade, it's Europe right now. Uh, and then you see similar approaches uh, for different uh, geographies and different segments. Uh, but these networks, they don't talk to each other. So how do you make them talk to each other? How do you connect the networks? Yeah, and that's, that's the brilliant question. Now, there are different approaches to this topic. Now, some people believe that uh, you need to build a uh, universal network, something to cover everything. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're the network of networks or a global... There are examples of that. Global trade network. So this is an approach, for example, uh, one, of, uh, one of the projects we, we've been kind of uh, following closely, of course, is a project called Marco Polo. And uh, they want to build a global trade network. And uh, that is a very, very ambitious goal. Uh, and all the best of luck to them uh, in doing that. Do uh, I hear that you don't support that uh, kind of view? We, we definitely support and, and you know, respect the ambition of that. Uh, so don't get me wrong on that. It's just the practical uh, implementation of a global network that is so difficult. Mm -hmm. Because what you practically need to do is you need to build a global network that complies with the laws and regulations and practices in all of the countries where you want to operate. Uh, and that is very, very hard to achieve. 
So that, that's very difficult. This large uh, global network yes. is very difficult. You say, what's a better approach? What's your approach? So not putting these things in order, but you know, at least from a personal preference, uh, from a practical standpoint, uh, again, being sorry for being an engineer about this, but you know, the, the very, very practical way of doing things is that you find these, again, smaller islands, smaller segments, and you, you create the business, you create the volume and demand for that business in that specific area, make sure you actually implement some narrow scope of uh, 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 use cases that you can able, able to deploy on that network. And then you start to seek interoperability across different networks. So this goes to the fundamentals of, uh, of network building in general. I mean, again, coming, coming back to the telecoms world, if you, if you looked at the way, for example, GSM networks uh, started originally in the, in the 90s, early 90s, uh, there was a vague standard, I would say, GSM, uh, following the NMT and, and so forth. And mobile operators started building their networks locally in the countries where they were operating. So, for example, when I got a, my brick Nokia phone uh, in the 90s uh, in Finland. Yeah, it was like a brick. Exactly, it was literally yeah. like a brick. The mm -hmm. uh, battery lasted two hours. It was uh, <laughs> a lot of fun. Uh, so the... Uh, uh, and then you put in a huge SIM card back then, it was like a literal credit card. And, uh, and then uh, you were able to phone, phone people or you know, call people in the same network, in the same country where I was in. Even though we already saw uh, GSM standards and GSM networks popping up different, uh, around the world, uh, there was no way for me to take my brick phone uh, to, even to Sweden and start talking here because you know, it couldn't connect to the network. The, uh, the next thing that happened is that, uh, you know, in different countries, uh, mobile operators started building their own networks. So, you know, suddenly my friend had another mobile operator, I had another mobile operator. We were still not able to call each other. But, you know, give it time and I was able to call, uh, you know, in my own country. And, you know, in time I was able to uh, go to even Sweden and start talking uh, to people in Sweden with my, with my phone. And then on, on, you know, on and on towards SMS and data and you know, now where we are today. I can take my iPhone uh, anywhere, anywhere in the world, uh, it will work. And so th is this the way it's going to be with uh, the networks yes. in the so, banking sector, you so, say? Yeah, so coming back to the, uh, to the trade example. So if you looked at the kind of mechanics behind how GSM networks started to proliferate, so they, they first created the demand, they created the business in their own network. Then they started reaching out to other networks, basically creating bilateral interoperability agreements because they were based on the same technical standard. Uh, and they, that's the way it even works today. So if you look at the way uh, roaming standards are done uh, you know, in, uh, in, the, uh, in the GSM world, these are defined on a high level by an organization called GSMA. So they have a, they have a kind of a rule book for, different, uh, for interoperability and uh, roaming rules. And then the business rules between those roaming is done uh, bilaterally by operators, uh, either in groups or you know, even individually in some cases. Uh, so there's the technical layer and then there's the business layer and the business layer agree on interoperability based on the same standards. Now, in the trade world, you know, if the first approach was to uh, create a universal network uh, that everybody uses, the second approach would be to maybe take a page from the playbook uh, of, uh, of GSM or mobile networks in general, where uh, you really focus on uh, you know, creating business value from the get-go, and then where you have this demand uh, growing, you start building bridges between these networks. And, uh, in fact, uh, again, working with WeTrade for the past uh, couple of years now, uh, we've, we've seen this done now, for example, mm -hmm. uh, with, between WeTrade and uh, 
a Hong Kong-based network called E-Trade Connect. So it's all happening, but the jury's still out there, right? Because Marco Polo is uh, running on. Yes, so Marco Polo, of course, I mean, they are, uh, I just had a conversation this morning, actually, about this. Uh, hi, Matilda. Uh, about this, uh, it's actually uh, going uh, live, mm -hmm. apparently, mm -hmm. this year. Uh, some people say it might be later. Uh, but again, they are getting close uh, to launching mm -hmm. some scope uh, on the Marco Polo network. And uh, let me be super clear, we don't consider Marco Polo to be competition. It is actually an enabler, because that, this talks to the broader point uh, of network effects and network building. So if we are on WeTrade now, and we've been live now for a while now uh, with WeTrade, and we have customers trading on the network, uh, we actually see it as an opportunity if the banks who are now working on Marco Polo actually go live and uh, open up a possibility for us to interoperate. You know, having the network effects and more endpoints for trades is a net positive for everybody. Clearly, there's much work left to do in joining up the digital trade space, and work that's surely taken on a great deal more urgency in recent months. For our final item, we stick with trade digitization, but jump forward to the present day in April 2020. I caught up with WeTrade CFO Ema Kelly and CEO Kieran McGowan on how the current crisis is impacting WeTrade's operations and their wider network. My name is Emer Kelly. I'm CFO of WeTrade. I'm here with our CEO, Kieran McGowan. And today we're just going to talk about some of the challenges businesses face in our now new world today. So first of all, um, a little bit about WeTrade. So we are a secure digital platform and it makes it simpler and more reliable for traders to buy and sell their products and services. They also have access to bank guarantees, finance, credit insurance and logistics. So it's all about cash flow and knowing when you will get paid. Well, there's definitely a good value proposition to SMEs there, Emer. some great benefits. I wish that WeTrade existed when I had my own business during the 2008 credit crisis, because uh, during that time, I experienced the pain on, on both the buyer and the seller sides. So, uh, for example, as a seller, uh, the larger corporates often took 90 days to pay me, and I was never quite sure when it was going to get paid. That yeah. could be very stressful, particularly when I had salaries to pay at the end of the month. And then the flip side of that, I mean, as a buyer, I, I traded with a supplier in Hong Kong and I had to prepay 16 weeks in advance and didn't have recourse to any discounts whenever delivery was incomplete or damaged. And that really impacted my cash flow badly. So, so in WeTrade, we, we address the challenges for both the buyers and the sellers by providing guarantees from our banks to pay our suppliers at a reasonable rate and knowing exactly when we're going to get paid through a blockchain smart contract triggered payment. Now to add to that, Emer, we've we have 16 of the leading banks in the world on the platform. And so what do you think that uh, we trade team or how do you think they're managing with the current restrictions? Yeah, uh, like most companies, I suppose for the last nearly five weeks now, we've all been working remotely. And we think there's actually a lot of positives from this as the productivity of our team is remaining really high and employees then are getting to spend the time with their families as the commuting is removed. Um, we were regular conference calls with the cameras, so we don't feel like we're missing that human contact as much. But don't get me wrong, Karen, it can definitely be challenging. And myself and my husband are both working at home and we have two young kids. So it's just about trying to do our best to make things work. 
Yeah, I can understand that as um, the parents with young children, it can be challenging, but no different than you saying that. I mean, the SMEs have an awful lot of challenges at the moment with lost revenue, the rent to pay, and staff to lay off, perhaps, unfortunately, the debt to pay and overheads to manage. And uh, now we, we, we focus on both SMEs and, and uh, small, medium corporates, but I guess it's the SMEs that are finding it particularly difficult at the moment in Europe and the Nordics. Yeah, and you know, while the governments are providing salary support and banks have agreed to provide moratoriums on business loans, the backlogs are increasing and many SMEs have not had clarity or response on their situations and this must be really stressful. Um, some of the SMEs have actually stopped trading and nobody really knows when or if the businesses will be back up and running. Well, so that's, that's where WeTrade can help. The whole idea about WeTrade is supporting businesses to improve their cash flow and knowing for definite when they're going to get paid, but also have the option to get liquidity through bank financing or guarantees. So let me give you an example of a benefit of a guarantee or a bank payment undertaking, the BPU is what we call it. So rather than prepaying three months in advance, an SME can get their bank to provide a guarantee that the seller to the seller that the bank's going to pay that invoice once the goods are delivered. And um, they have the option then of not paying the bank back until three months after the goods are delivered. Now that can make a massive difference to an SME. And it's a very reasonable rate that the banks are charging for that service. And then at yeah. the back of that, I mean, the seller can say, hi, I've got a guarantee from my buyer's bank that they'll pay me. And the seller can then get financing from the seller's bank. Uh, now, add to that, Emer, we now have social distancing and the complete collapse of international travel and a platform that provides trust, security and reliability about the trader that you're going to do business with. I mean, that could be invaluable. Yeah, and the current paper-based nature of the trade means that some companies have a problem with that processing physical documents. And, you know, as I mentioned, WeTrade is the digital platform, but it tracks a trade from end to end. So it starts with finding a counterparty, negotiating a deal, creating a trade and tracking that trade right through to the payment triggering. So with all this necessary digital documentation, so it gets rid of that paper based model. Well, yeah, the other beauty of this, Emer, is that merchants can be brought online with WeTrade's banks within a matter of hours. I mean, the bank simply does a demo, issues a login with a passport, password and off the trader goes. Now due to demand, we're introducing a new model later this year where, where SMEs, buyers that are not pre-approved customers of WeTrade's consortium, that they could join the platform also and in the, in, the, in the case that the sellers get in credit insurance. Yeah, in terms of that demand you're talking about, there are two things that are playing in our favour at the moment. So the first thing is the existing WeTrade banks are now fully integrated into our platform for payment triggering and authentication. So they fully signed off the security and compliance elements of the platform and they're ready to fully commercialise in the second half of this year. And actually they've agreed to bring 10% of their customer base onto the platform. Um, secondly, I mean, the current environment, you know, yourself is screaming out for a solution that helps with this li liquidity, the cash flow and gives the reliability of the traders that you're dealing with. Yeah, well, I, I guess this pandemic, I mean, it's really created challenge challenges and uh, those challenges are driving a lot of change. And in particular, uh, a faster path to digitization, which is good by removing the need for signed 
paper documentation. In fact, I know that the International Chamber of Commerce, the ICC, they're looking to change English law to remove all the blockers to digitization and digital documents. So in future, I hope that it won't be, um, well, actually in future, I know that it won't be easy to, to hop on a plane to Hong Kong or Kuala Lumpur to find a new supplier to deal with. So you really need to have reliability when you're dealing with a new trader. And, and WeTrade provides a reliability score for those traders and so that you, you can't meet them face-to-face -face anymore. So you can't yeah. hop on a plane to Hong Kong or Malaysia. Or certainly it won't be as easy to do that. So therefore you need to know, has that trader paid on time? Did they deliver on time? Did they deliver quality goods? And what's their carbon score, for example? That's another bonus. But don't you think that the key to it all is to be interoperable? Oh, yeah. I know that interoperability was one of the 2019's most popular buzzwords. And it was used mainly in reference to the various trade-focused blockchain companies. But I, I suppose the current events are acting as a catalyst for a greater focus on this collaboration between blockchain platforms. Now, like our vision has always been to be the network of networks. And I think you'll definitely agree with that, Karen. Yeah. So, um, as you say, with that vision, you have different types of platforms. You have trade platforms, you have global platforms for logistics, and then you have industrial platforms. But we can't do it all on our own. And uh, we plan to interconnect to those platforms. So you take our own trade platform. It's got banks and insurance companies, and they bring on their merchants uh, through a compliance process. But we need data, valuable data from other platforms. So, for example, uh, the temperature of a good in transport could come from a logistics platform or the carbon score of a trader uh, in a trade platform, industrial trade platform, that will help uh, provide discounts for those green trades. So the data that, that's in, that we can access from those different platforms is going to be critical. Yeah. So basically, to summarize, um, you know, we do understand that it's very stressful for SMEs at this time, but we're very proud in a non-selfish way that we trade can genuinely help businesses to overcome some of those challenges they face today. So I'd like to thank GTOR now for allowing us to discuss these issues today, and it's great to take part. Many thanks, Emer and Kieran. Here at GTR, we'll be keeping close tabs on how the crisis affects ongoing efforts toward the integration of various trade tech platforms and networks in the coming months and years. That brings us to a close for this episode, but do head over to gtreview.com for a wealth of trade finance news, podcasts, on-demand webinars, and our forthcoming live webinar and event schedule, including the next instalment of the GTR Nordics Conference in November 2020. Hopefully finishing on a high with some non-trade related Nordic news. I'm pleased to report that IKEA has recently released the recipe for its popular Swedish meatballs for those currently obliged to eat at home. Great news for those living outside the Nordic region who are that way inclined, and even better, they should be easier to assemble than the furniture. Many thanks for listening, and until we meet again, do take care.